This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Pass the board quickly. Down to six seconds. Carr going down again. And it's Quentin Williams this time for the Jets. And welcome back to an episode of the Cool Your Jets podcast. We host Ben Blessington and Michael Nania back with another podcast. This one has been a, a heavily requested one. We're back with Oscar Aparicio from At Better Rivals. Michael, when we did the head coaching candidate profiles, we got a lot of great feedback. We had a lot of great guests, but I don't think we got as much feedback as we did on the, on the Robert Sala episode, even before he was hired. We, we had Oscar on before Sala even interviewed with the Jets uh, and it was an absolute home run. He gave us so much, so many great tidbits and, and great information about Sala that we were completely sold by the end of it. So really excited to have Oscar back on the show to, to break down Sala's staff, talk a little bit uh, about the type of team that Sala is building uh, and just any other last questions. Now that Robert Sala is officially the head coach of the New York Jets. I still get goosebumps when I say that. But Oscar, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's, it's a pleasure to be back on. I'm glad that, uh, that y'all and your fans enjoyed the last show. Uh, and I'm glad that you guys got your wish because it was a bit of a pie in the sky the last time that we talked where he hadn't even interviewed. We're not sure if he's going to do it. And then it was like interview, second interview. There's your coach. Uh, and, and it worked out real well for you guys. We're yeah, not. I, used- I remember in that episode, I'm actually on there saying like, you know, he was my number one guy, but I said, I, I think it's too good to be true. I don't think it'll yeah. actually happen. We'll talk about it, but you know, you'll probably, he, he's not going to entertain this team, but it panned out. So well, we're just Sorry. not used. We're just not used to getting like the guy we want. I mean, even with Trevor Lawrence, like happening a month before missing out on him, it's just, we're just used to the jets breaking our hearts. And, and look, he still has to coach a game here. But uh, this is the most optimistic we've been about this team and this coaching staff in a while. So let's just hop right into the coaching staff because I think most interesting about Robert Sala or one of the most interesting parts to me and, and one of the, the biggest benefits to bringing him in outside of what he brings as a head coach was who he's going to bring along as an offensive coordinator, bringing a, a Kyle Shanahan protege to run the offense. And after watching an Adam Gase offense for two years and Jerry Bates and Marty Morningweg and I, don't, I can't even think of other Chan Gailey Chan Gailey. Um, it's exciting to have, at least on the surface, a a new age offensive coordinator in the NFL. So I guess for our listeners, can you just kind of describe the Kyle Shanahan offense and what Jets fans can expect on Sundays? Yeah, so the the Kyle Shanahan offense is really predicated on a couple of key components. One is deception, and the other is motion. Uh, And and then the third is really repeatability. And and deception and motion and, and repeatability all kind of go hand in hand. But it really is based on the foundation of a zone running scheme. Now, Shanahan has evolved a little bit since then. But early on, if you look at the evolution of Shanahan, he comes from his dad's offense. And his dad's offense was, you know, wide zone, wide zone, wide zone. Uh, The father of the wide zone, Gibbs, basically was like, this is the only run we're going to run. And and you do it over and over and over until you're perfect at it. And that's kind of where uh, Kyle Shanahan came from in terms of the base run. 
Now, everything builds off of that. You've got play action boots off of those runs. You've got, you know, kind of a lot of other things that get bolted on. The thing that Shanahan's system is really, really good at is that it's not a collection of plays. It's an integrated set of things that all provide the same picture to a defense, but have subtle changes that eventually present a different final thing to that defense. And that's where the deception comes in because ultimately you've got, you know, the wide zone looks the same, but then you got boot action off that wide zone. You've got runs that look the same. You've got, you know, route stems that look exactly the same up until they break in a different direction. So it really is a lot of giving the same picture over and over and over to the defense uh, that may not be the same thing that they see over and over and over again. It really is built on deception, a solid running game, um, and, and he attacks different areas of the field depending on his offense um, and, and the personality he's got for his offense. For the Niners, he it definitely attacks the middle of the field, and he has done that in, in the three years that he's been with the Niners, but I think that's largely because of the quarterback that he's got. He is more akin to attacking different areas of the field when he's got a quarterback that can do that. If you look at where Matt Ryan attacked, he attacked all over the place. It was still an intermediate-level passing game. It was still a passing game that is, that is really built around attacking people and spaces, um, and, and not so much, you know, kind of running a play because you think it looks good. The, the most interesting bit about Shanahan's history as, and development as a coach is that when he started as, as a coach in the NFL, he really learned at the feet of Monty Kiffin in Tampa Bay as an offensive assistant. He learned all the rules of the defense. He learned the pattern match rules. He learned the coverage rules. He, he learned where the weak spots were in a defense so that he could go and attack that defense. And, and I think it's really his understanding of defense that makes him such a good offensive play caller and I think that 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 kind of permeates down to his staff and and the people that he brings up and coaches up and you know Mike McDaniel's been, or Mike LaFleur has been with him for for a while now uh, and I'm positive that he's probably gained some of those lessons as well so when you're looking at you know what is the offense going to look like on Sunday it's still going to lean on the run game but it's going to have a lot of likely condensed splits, condensed formations, uh, a lot of route stems and plays that look similar, but build off of each other in order to attack key areas or specifically key defenders in a way that's, that's really, really awesome. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of motion. Um, they are, they run a lot of play action. Um, one of the heaviest play action and motion teams in the league. So it's, it's a really fun offense and you can, I mean, you can have a career spent uh, learning this offense and still only scratch the surface. Yeah, and I think the big question I have is that because we're bringing over Matt LaFleur to or Mike LaFleur to be the offensive coordinator after he was in that passing game coordinator role where it's it's sort of hard to evaluate how much involvement he actually had. So we're talking about the Shanahan offense, what he did in Atlanta and as the head coach over there at the Niners, but it's tough to project exactly what LaFleur is going to do with the Jets coming over from the role he had over there. So I guess my question is, what do you see LaFleur – what portion of what the Niners did do you see him bringing over? Is this going to be almost a carbon copy of what the Niners did? How much of his own spin do you see him putting on what he'll be doing with the Jets? You know, it, it's hard to know for sure, but I think that it's going to be, when you hear what LaFleur has said, even just in kind of the intro press conferences, it does sound like he's going to have a lot of the philosophical tenets of a Shanahan offense built into his offense. He talked about how it all starts with the run game, which sets up the pass, right? So you're already going to be thinking about, okay, we're probably going to try to sign a fullback. Maybe, maybe Kyle Juszczyk, maybe someone else is out there. I would not recommend spending 3x the amount of dollars on a fullback. You can probably find one that's good enough for a couple million dollars. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. But, but you're probably going to see a fullback. You are going to see some zone runs. You're going to see a really strong foundation for the run. 
And then that sets up everything from there. You're going to see boot passes. You're going to see condensed formations. You're likely going to see an involved tight end. You're going to see all of the things that Shanahan has become known for recently. How he structures that offense is going to be kind of unique to LaFleur, and I think that's a little to be decided. But I think in terms of philosophical tenets, a lot of play action, um, you know, kind of condensed splits, maybe passing out of running formations, that's probably all things you're going to see. And there, there are tips to that in some of the press conference stuff that he, that LaFleur is already talking about. Hey, I'm full on team Kyle Juszczyk bringing him over to the Jets. I just, uh, we had a podcast last week. We were talking about free agents. I'm all aboard the Kyle Juszczyk train. I, I will spend $5 million on fullback just because I think uh, when you look at what he's brought to San Francisco, I mean, I would, I would love to have a player like him, especially, I, you know, I grew up in the Jets signed Tony Richardson, a fullback, and he made such a difference uh, in those, those early Rex years. And it's a different player, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay paying a fullback. I think, uh, Hey, new England does it. It's worked for, for San Francisco, obviously with him. So I'm all aboard that. I think one of the interesting things that you've talked about, and it's really, it's really interesting to think about because everybody thinks that today the NFL is a passing league and it is, I mean, in order to win, you have to, to pass the football. But what I think what Shanahan's offense does really well is you, you build it off the run. You have to be able to run in order to pass. And it's a lot of play action, deep shots, uh, and it's aggressive-minded football. When you think of the type of personnel packages, I mean, under Adam Gase, the Jets ran a lot of 11 personnel. They were out of the shotgun a lot. They didn't run too much play action. The play action that they did run was fairly lazy, and I don't know if that's mostly on Sam Darnold or just the way they coached it, but it was a very static and, and boring offense, I guess. Can you just talk about the personnel groupings that, uh, that you would expect a, a Michael Floor offense to use? Do you think they're going to use a lot of 12 personnel? In which case, should they go out and target a, a big number two tight end? Do you think they're going to use a lot of under center, shotgun, just kind of the, I guess, the formations and the personnel packages that, that you'd expect? So we talked a little bit about flexibility and presenting the same picture to a defense, but doing very different things. And, and that means that it might look like a run-based personnel, but you're going to pass out of it. Um, and, and I think the base personnel really for Shanahan offenses begins with 21 personnel. So two backs, one tight end. That's likely going to be the base personnel. And, and if, if LaFleur is anything like Shanahan, it really is going to depend on what personnel he's got that's going to dictate his formations. Shanahan is a formationally diverse coach. He's going to use, you know, three different personnel sets, you know, really about 15 to 20% of the time. Um, so you've got 11 personnel, which is, he uses 11 personnel, one of the lowest, at one of the lowest rates in the league, but it's still one of the, you know, kind of top two or three used personnel groupings, 21, 22 personnel. Um, you could see them running, you know, like a one wide receiver set. If that's really the only good wide receiver that they've got, I think New York has some good wide receivers, right? Denzel Mims chief among them. So I think you'll probably see, um, some wide receivers out there, but it really is going to depend hopefully on the personnel, because if, if LaFleur has taken anything from Shanahan, it's that, you know, you, you really do have to kind of, you have some ideas, you have some philosophies, but you've got to tailor it to the people that you've got. Cause if you don't, then you're going to be trying to, you know, put a square peg in a round hole, all the euphemisms you can think of, and it's not going to end well for you. So hopefully he's going to look at his pieces and see what can I run really well, but really in, in the, the kind of ethos of the offense, you're going to see a formationally diverse offense. It's not going to be majority 11 personnel. McVeigh is really the, the tree and the, the branch in the Shanahan tree that does primarily 11 personnel. And even he's moved off of that in the last couple of years, because there is something to be said about presenting the same picture, but you can do that in a lot of different ways in the NFL and defenses are very, very smart. And there's a limit to what you can do with 11 personnel. Um, so I do think you'll see a, a very formationally diverse offense now with, Lef with uh, LaFleur in, in New York. 
So let's talk about the defense. Obviously, with the Jets, Salah's already said that he's not going to be calling the plays. That's going to go to Jeff Olbrich. But, of course, he'll probably be a major part in constructing that defense from a schematic and philosophical standpoint. And Olbrich does come from the same background in Seattle under Pete Carroll, uh, just like Robert Salah was. They shared some time in Seattle, so they do have similar backgrounds. So what do you expect from this defense? How much, and, and similar to the question I asked regarding LaFleur coming over from San Francisco, how much of what Salah did there do you think is going to be brought over? How much adapting do you think is going to be done uh, now that he's working with Ulbrich and he's with this new team that is not really fit in its current state? Obviously, they can make a lot of moves in the next few months, but this is a team that's coming over from a 3-4 defense under Greg Williams is going to have to change quite a bit if they're going to play the way that he did in San Francisco. So what do you expect from this defense from a philosophical standpoint? And what changes do you think they'd have to make to fit that? So it really is going to be all 49ers all the time, man. Jeff Ulbrich was a linebacker for the 49ers. Uh, he was drafted in, in 2000. He was a third round pick. Uh, he's at, he actually went to Morgan Hill High School in California. Man, you guys are just taking all the California <laughs> transplants over there. Um, but but Ulbrich is, is going to be trained in that Seattle-style defense. And that Seattle-style defense is... And it was the defense that Sala ran, his, I think, his first year or two in San Francisco. It was a majority single high defense. And that can be cover one, cover three. Um, and, and that is going to be really, I think the, the first couple of years he ran it somewhere near 60% of the time. And when you see the Gus Bradley's of the world, that's about where they live. They live in a single high defense about 60 to 70% of the time. Um, and that means that your corners have to really work the vertical thirds of the field. They're going to use that sideline as an extra defender, but they're really going to be kind of press bail corners. They're really going to be, you know, either press man corners. They're going to be like up in the face, but they're going to really be responsible for those thirds. And then you need a safety who's in the middle of the field, who's going to cover kind of everything else. Earl Thomas, of course, being the paragon of that type of safety. Now, later in his time in San Francisco, Solid did bolt on other things to his defense that, that I think he might carry with him to to, to New York. One was he started relying more on quarters and split safety coverages. One of his favorite checks is uh, cover six when you're looking at a three by one formation. Uh, and that's a split safety look. Um, and, and cover six, because sometimes cover six means different things depending on the coaching tree that you're in, but it, it's quarter, quarter, half. So you've got quarters to one side and, and a safety over the top on the other. Um, you're going to see some, a fair bit of stunts and you're going to see a blitz rate that kind of hovers around 25% or maybe more, depending on whether or not he can get pressure with his front four. In 2019, Sala didn't really call a ton of blitzes um, because he had a front four that he didn't need to call blitzes for. He had Bosa, he had Ford at times, he had Armstead, he had Buckner. Um, once you get to 2020, though, you see the stunt game really ramp up and you see the blitz rate get high as well. Another person that understands that you want to change how you call your plays depending on the personnel that you got. Um, and, and I think the base foundation of a lot of that is going to be that Seattle kind of, you know, you've got four down, you've got three deep, and then you've got four underneath defenders uh, that are going to cover those short zones. Now, what, what they start out with, I think, may be different than what they end up with, because I think Sala understands that you kind of want to start in a place where you let your defense play fast. Um, and I wouldn't worry, and so he's going to keep things simple. I wouldn't worry too much about the 3-4 to 4-3 shift. I think any good coach in the NFL, th those, those systems are so hybrid now that you're really going to be able to do a lot of, uh, in, in a 4-3 alignment, you're going to do a lot of similar 3-4 things. I mean, Pete Carroll was really famous for playing a five technique on the backside of his defensive line. So you're, you're two-gapping, 
but you're one gapping on the other side. So you have, you know, if you've got like a big two gapping defensive end that's used to playing three, four, you can still do that on one side of your defensive line. And you've got the other side of the defensive line, one gapping. And so I think that you really, that's not, it shouldn't be that much of a transition. If you've got really good players, you're going to find ways to have them be successful. And I think that Salah understands how to get the most out of his players. Um, and, and I think that Ulbrich is so well-versed in that Seattle scheme that they'll probably have a pretty good marriage and understand what they want to do such that you're not going to see too much uh, of a bumpy transition initially, I, I would think. Yeah, it's good to hear you say that he's going to try to mold it uh, around the players he has. Obviously, they're going to have to, to make a lot of moves this offseason to, to, to fill out the roster and, and to, to accomplish really anything that Saul is trying to do. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But a lot of the players that you, you talked about, a, a guy who's two-gapping, I mean, the Jets have a player in Foley Fadakasi who's a zero technique, a one-tech, and he's emerged as one of the Jets' best defensive linemen. And when they first hired Saul, I was like, you know, is he, is he going to be the right fit? But obviously that you know, when you have a, a talented defensive lineman like that, you can just line him up against Quentin Williams. You might have to change some of the things that you're doing, but you can certainly make it happen. And then when you talk about a guy controlling the deep middle, the Jets have a, a safety. He's, a, he's a, currently a free agent, but I do expect the Jets to franchise tag him or resign him and Marcus May, who's pretty much built perfectly uh, in, in that deep third ball hawking role. And, you know, look, they also have CJ Mosley at that Mike linebacker. We'll see how he looks after essentially two years away from football, but they do have some of the, the more important pieces to run Salah's defense, but yeah, they're definitely gonna have to make some moves. The staff that Saul has assembled has gotten a lot of uh, of praise, and Michael and I, and and probably yourself to a certain extent, can't comment too much on these guys because when a guy's a position coach, you don't really hear too much from him. But they're obviously integral. I mean, these are the guys that are working with your players day in and day out, and working on the the fundamentals and the technique, and they're really getting hands on experience with the players. Where you know Saul as a head coach is gonna have to delegate a lot of those responsibilities that he had in San Francisco. From what you know of the staff, and, and you mentioned how it's a lot of San Francisco transplants, I think it's seven um, coaches on the staff that have connections to San Francisco. What is your reaction, I guess, to the staff that Saul has built? Because people around the league and insiders have been very complimentary of it. Obviously, Jets fans and myself included are going to eat that up, but we don't really have much of an idea of, of who these guys are. I guess, what is your opinion on the staff that Saul has built? From what you've seen, obviously, you're quite familiar with it since Saul has essentially raided uh, a large portion of, of the Niners staff. So the, there are some, some kind of philosophical similarities between the two staffs that, you know, even without getting into the individual people and how good they are, I think you can see some of these trends that, that, are, that are good. One is that you've got a mix of experience and up and comers. So you get a well-rounded, a, a, a well-rounded staff <laughs> in terms of, yeah, I know it's, it's tough. It's difficult. Uh, a well-rounded staff in terms of experience, but also that, that youth and invigoration of new ideas. You think of someone like Miles Austin. Miles Austin, he was a coach for a year with San Francisco. He was an offensive quality control coach, someone who's just kind of getting into the NFL, but has the experience of being uh, a wide receiver. But then you've got the passing game specialist, Greg Knapp. He is a longtime coach. I mean, he like goes back to San Francisco back when George Seifert was there. He was an offensive coordinator for the Niners years and years and years ago. And he's got a deep, rich history in that West Coast passing game. Um, you know, you've got the, the running backs coach, uh, John Embry, um, who's been, you know, kind of in the college ranks, but he's also, he was also with the Chiefs in 2016. And, and then you've got John Benton, who's the offensive line coach. And he's been coaching for, you know, probably 30 some odd years. And, and is really steeped in that zone run kind of system. So you've got a really good balance of like young guys and old guys that have been doing a lot of things in similar systems for a long time. And the reason the Niners can, can afford some of these coaching losses is because 
there, there is no, there's no limit to the number of coaches you can have. There's no salary cap on coaches. There's no limit to the number of positions. You can have like a passing game specialist and you can have like a, a third and long passing specialist and a fourth and short passing. It doesn't matter. And, and so what the Niners have done is they've created this system where in some cases they have co-coaches, like co-defensive line coaches or co-offensive line coaches. They had a co-offensive line coach with John Benton uh, and Chris Forrester. Uh, I think it's actually pronounced Forrester. But you, you now have one that leaves, John Benton, and the Niners are still left with Chris Furster. And so everyone can kind of win. You, you see a pipeline of coaches that are getting built because there's no limit there. And I think when you get players like Greg Knappen as passing game specialist, he may not be the offensive coordinator, but you get consistency across these things in case coaches start to leave. Because that's always a danger for someone like Robert Sala. We talked about the, that being the only drawback for him, right? Whereas, like, let's say LaFleur becomes the next hotshot offensive coach and someone wants to hire him next year because he's the, he's the next wonderkind, right? Well, now it's like, okay, so who's calling the plays? You've got stability with Greg Knapp. You've got stability with your tight end. You've got stability there built into how you've hired and structured your staff. And I think that Sala saw that, learned that lesson in San Francisco and did something very, very similar with New York. So I think, you know, for, for the coaches that he's amassed, that's always a very, very important thing. It's like, can you create stability? But also, can you hire good people? John Benton is well-respected in NFL circles. Greg Knapp, similarly well-respected. Miles Austin is a bit more new. Um, but these are players, uh, these are coaches that you look and you're like, yeah, there's, there's some heavy-hitting people here. Um, this isn't just like some random, some random staff that you've amassed. Like I think of the Jim Tom Suley year in San Francisco, you know, we hired a, a quarterbacks coach who was a, you know, a radio DJ and like, you know, hadn't coached in three years because no one else would be his quarterbacks coach. He just didn't have the connections with the staff to be able to do that. Uh, well, you know, Robert Sala does not have that problem at all. He's got, uh, he's amassed a really, really good staff so far uh, and people that are well-regarded both either because of their tenure or because of their up and coming status. And John Ben is one guy I wanted to talk about because the offensive line has obviously been a problem for the Jets for a while. They took some steps last year, but still a long way to go. And it's a really important position where they have to improve. And Ben has a very long, very successful resume as an offensive line coach in the league. And with the Niners the past four years, he was a part of a lot of development on that unit. He in inherited a group that wasn't too good before he came in. Uh, and then they gradually improved to one of the better groups in the league. So what can you say, uh, even if not about Ben in particular, just the development of that offensive line over his tenure uh, over the past four years there? So Ben's another one of those long tenure guys. He goes all the way back to Houston and Kubiak in 2007, 2008. And, and those offensive lines and, and that kind of offense that was more nap based and then Shanahan was the offensive coordinator back then, um, but still based on the wide zone type of run scheme. So, you know, he knows how to coach that run scheme really, really well. Well, you zoom forward past, you know, because his other coaching stints and he's, he bounces around a couple of places. He gets to the 49ers. And, and I think one of the most impressive things that he did with the 49ers is what he did in 2019. The Niners made it to the Super Bowl but they weren't without injury on their offensive line. They drafted a six-round rookie in Justin School, and they signed a guy named uh, Dan Brunskill, who had played in the AAF. And at one point, Joe Staley gets injured, and he misses some games. Mike McGlinchey gets injured, and he misses some games. And the Niners are without their starting tackles for about five weeks early on in the season. They, they changed their play calling a little bit to account for it, but he got those players ready to play, and, and Brunskill played at a top-10 tackle level in limited plays in 2019. 
he's now in the mix to start at guard in a couple of other places. But that's the kind of development that you can see from someone who's just so well steeped in this system and who knows it inside and out. Dan Brunskill is an example of that. Justin School is another example of that. Though Justin School, I mean, he was a six-round pick. So he's like not terribly great at football, but he was good enough that he wasn't an abject disaster for large stretches, which from a you know a position coach, it's like if you can get a couple of solid weeks out of a six-round rookie in an offensive system that's really, really complicated. I mean, incredibly complicated. Um, that's, that's good. That's really, really good. So he is someone that you can expect to develop the players and pieces that he has, whether or not he's got young ones or whether or not he's got old ones, because he got Joe Staley playing back to you know his all-pro level. Trent Williams came and had one of his best seasons in the last five years of him actually playing football, not you know his, his year that where he, he took the year off. But he really is a good get for you guys. Um, and, and luckily the Niners had Chris Furster kind of, you know, waiting in the wings and hopefully he's got, you know, his substance abuse stuff under control. So that won't be an issue, but, um, yeah, I think Ben's definitely one of the, the shining stars of that coaching staff. And, and another guy I wanted to ask about was Tony Odin, the, uh, secondary and cornerbacks coach for the Niners last year, only one year in San Francisco was with Miami a couple of years before that in Detroit, but he's got a really good resume. He's been a part of a lot of success, whether it's Darius Slay in Detroit, Xavier Howard. In Miami, Darrell Revis has bounced back here. And then last year at the Niners, that secondary had a lot of success stories, whether it was Jason Verrett, Witherspoon, there, a lot a lot of good success in that secondary with the troubles up front, not creating a lot of pressure. But like you told us last time, it was the coverage in that back end that was really carrying that defense. So what can you say about uh, what the secondary did under Tony Oden last year? Yeah, so the, I mean, really, Jason Verrett is the story of last year's secondary. Were it not for Jason Verrett, this would be a defense that would be trotting out, who knows, at, at the corner position, because Richard Sherman was injured for the entire year. Witherspoon was kind of a, you know, a, a bounce around kind of failure. And Emmanuel Mosley is the other guy. I think that Tony Oden, he, he really did continue to shepherd the work that Joe Woods really started to establish the year before that in 2019. Joe Woods came over uh, from, uh, or he became the defensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns, but he, Joe Woods really is the, the person who started to build some of the split safety coverages into the defense. Uh, I was talking to Matt Barrows, um, who is a beat writer for the 49ers, and he was telling me that a lot of the people that, that were brought onto the coaching staff to Robert Sala's defense were Shanahan requests. When you think of Chris Kasurik, when you think of Joe Woods, they were people that Shanahan was like, hey, I think that we're going to bring this person in and, and I think they're going to do good things for our defense. It was still on Robert Sala to fold those strategies into the overall structure of the defense and to call those plays on defense. And, and I think that he's taken some of those pieces as well. Tony Oden is a bit more like Joe Woods uh, than he is more of like that single high Seattle area. He's used to a bit more man coverage uh, and, and he's got another similarly long coaching resume. So I think Tony Oden is another really good get in terms of someone who can really steady the ship and knows the kind of stuff that he, that he wants to call. Uh, and so I think that, yeah, he, he's going to be a good in general piece for your secondary, but he does have some of those uh, he's got a more, a more breadth of ideas necessarily than just that single high defense that you're, you're going to see from Ulbrich. And, and I think he is more of, of a, a solid pick necessarily than, you know, Odin working with Ulbrich necessarily, because I'm sure Ulbrich probably had some say in like, Hey, I want this assistant or that assistant, but Odin is definitely like a solid, like, yeah, this is the guy who I want coaching DBs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been incredible as a Jets fan to hear all, all the praise that, that pundits around the league have had for the staff. And we just know how important building a good staff is because the Jets have not had a really good staff since, since the beginning of, of Rex. Uh, and that's when the Jets were, 
probably at their peak uh, of the 21st century. And since then, it's just deteriorated over time. And it's it's really important. Some of the examples that you brought up when you have a six round rookie or for the Jets, I mean, they had undrafted rookies playing corner last year and, and guys are thrown into the limelight, especially when you don't have a particularly talented or deep team. And when you could just get solid football and not, you know, utter disasters like I've seen plenty of Jets players have uh, in the past, that's a win. And I think for the Jets that it's going to be it's we're still in the midst of a rebuild. I obviously have high expectations for the jets and, and rebuilding in the NFL is, you know, not necessarily viewed the same way as it was. It's about a two or three year turnaround. And I think the jets can make some serious leaps, but when you look at the roster this year, they're going to have a lot of holes and they're going to have to be aggressive in free agency and aggressive in the draft, but they're not going to be able to fix everything. Um, but the good news in that is that you're going to, that Sala has the opportunity alongside Joe Douglas to completely reshape the roster uh, in Robert Sala's vision. In other words, they don't have to worry about tearing down an existing structure because there's really nothing there to tear down. It's really just building up on on these the minimal studs that the Jets currently have. But let's go through some position groups and and you can just talk about in Kyle, under Kyle Shanahan or under Robert Sala as the defensive coordinator, what exactly they were looking for and maybe what exactly the, the Jets will be looking for as they try to shape um, this unit. When you look at a quarterback and a Kyle Shanahan offense, and we have a quarterback question, two quarterback questions coming up towards the end of the podcast. Can you just talk about some of the things that a quarterback in a, a West Coast Shanahan offense needs to be able to do? What is you know pros have to be, and and maybe some of the cons that that get over um, that that aren't as apparent in this offense uh, would be. One one thing before we get to quarterbacks, Tony Oden was the de- defensive backs coach in Detroit, where he really married his coverage with the wide nine stuff. So I was oh. curious who your defensive line coach was going to be to see if he's going to carry some of the wide nine stuff with him on defense, even with Ulbrich that he that he you know kind of learned from Chris Kasurik and brought over from San Francisco. So I think that's one of the benefits of Oden is he knows how to how to have his coverage marry with some of that wide nine stuff. So knowing that Shanahan was the guy who was like, hey, here's Chris Kasurik, let's do some wide nine. I'm definitely curious to see if, if that now has become part of Sala's stuff or if he's going to say, hey, I ran that while I was in San Francisco, but uh, now I'm going to you know, kind of do something else because it seems like he's going to carry some of that wide nine stuff with him, with Odin at that uh, kind of you know, senior assistant defensive backs coach kind of guy. Yeah, Aaron Whitecotton is the defensive line coach and he comes over from, I think he spent time with uh, Sala in Jacksonville. Um, but yeah, really, I, I'm honestly fascinated to see what this team is going to look like, because it does seem like, yes, they have deep roots in San Francisco, but Sala is, is spreading out. You know, he's going back to Seattle and Jacksonville, and he's bringing in people he hasn't worked with. Obviously, Joe Douglas hired him as somebody he's never worked with, and they are really seeming to marry different philosophies. And you kind of talked about having inexperienced guys and young guys who may end up being future offense coordinators or future head coaches but marrying them with, with veterans that can kind of help steer the ship. And I'm really just excited about the staff. And, and I agree. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm curious to see what the defense is going to look like since he's not calling plays. Cause that was one of the things that we talked about was, is he going to call plays? Can he just be the head coach? Just a really fascinating dynamic to watch, but with the quarterback, obviously the most important thing. And, and on obviously on the top of, uh, of minds of many jets fans and honestly Niners fans too. Um, what does a quarterback in a Kyle Shanahan system uh, need to be able to do? So a quarterback in Kyle Shanahan's system needs to be able to process uh, relatively quickly. There's a lot of stuff that gets thrown on the plate of a, a Shanahan quarterback. Um, and, and they've got to be able to understand read shell coverages. Um, and I mean, a, a great Shanahan quarterback is going to have the arm strength to kind of get the ball 
deep, especially to wide open receivers. Cause there are a lot of wide open receivers in a Shanahan offense and you've got to have a quarterback who can really, really put it on them, especially in the middle of the field, because there is an inefficiency with defenses. When you think of, of a linebacker, because a linebacker is one of the uh, few positions in, in defense that really has like run first and then pass responsibilities. And you can really attack that defensive responsibility. This is why Shanahan's offenses have a ton of play action. Because if you can affect that linebacker, get them to step up just a couple of steps, you've given yourself some more room for the quarterback. You've made the throw a little easier for the quarterback. So the, the quarterback has got to be able to, to process quickly and put the ball on players in the middle of the field, ideally um, accurately to give them some run after the catch capabilities. I mean, in a perfect world, obviously you want a quarterback that can attack all areas of the field. But if you can't, you'd rather have them be able to attack the middle of the field than the edges. That's what the Niners have in Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, and, and if you're going to kind of you know, lose something, that, that's what you want to lose. You want to lose that kind of sideline throw because you know there's a lot of meat on that middle of the field bone. You, you do need a quarterback that is, that is mobile. And, and I don't mean, um, you know, like RG3 mobile, although you can do that. Um, you just need a quarterback that's mobile enough to threaten and move the pocket as you move from that play-action boot game. Um, that, that's really the kind of mobility that you need. Um, and ideally, you need, you know, enough pocket mobility to be able to avoid some rush. But the, the offense is going to be able to get a lot of things built into the system, uh, whether it be RPOs, whether it be screens, whether it be deep shots or play action, um, that, that are all going to help that quarterback out. But the one thing that the quarterback is going to need to be really, really comfortable doing is turning their back to the defense. It's not something all quarterbacks are really good at. Um, it is basically kind of turn your back, initiate a play fake, and then whip your head back around and still make the right read. It really is a marrying of pre-snap identification and post-snap confirmation. When you're in the shotgun, you can see everything happening. And if you're doing a zone read play fake, your eyes are still forward on the defense. But when you're, when you're executing an under center Shanahan play fake, you turn your back to the defense, you stretch that ball out, and then you pull it back, whip around, and you've got to identify your key defender. You've got to process that he's doing what you thought he was going to do and then make the throw. That's a lot of stuff to process really, really quickly. And not every quarterback is really comfortable doing that, um, which is why, you know, you want to see quarterbacks in a pro-style system from college in, and, and it's easier to project them to the NFL. This is where the Zach Wilsons of the world may be a bit more alluring because they played in a Shanahan-style system with a lot of play action, really good offensive line, some structured deep shots. Um, and so you can really translate his game really easily to the NFL because he's had, you're asking him to do a lot of stuff that's similar to what you're going to do in the NFL. That's how the Niners ended up with CJ Beathard. Iowa runs a pro style offense uh, and CJ Beathard was, and he's not a great quarterback, but that's the kind of player that, that if you're looking for a collegiate quarterback and projecting him to the NFL is like, okay, are they comfortable executing ball fakes? Can they turn their back to the defense? Is their footwork going to be in timing so that we can establish the timing of these routes really well? Are they going to give their tackles a good pocket and not be like Mahomes in the Super Bowl and drop 12 yards, which is going to make it really difficult for your tackles to block because they don't know where you are? Um, that's the kind of stuff that you really want out of a Shanahan quarterback. Now, after hearing that, and I'm sure you, you've done your homework on, or at least started to do your homework on the draft quarterbacks, because as somebody who covers the, the 49ers, it seems they're, they're sniffing around, potentially maybe, maybe, maybe trading <laughs> up or maybe hoping somebody falls. Do you think that Zach Wilson is that much better of a fit in this offense than Justin Fields? Do you think there's, there's a, you know, cause I think some of the concerns with, with Fields, or at least my two biggest concerns with Fields in this offense would be 
he is a slower processor than Zach Wilson. I don't necessarily think he's a bad processor. Or he doesn't get it. Whereas I think, you know, a guy like Sam Darnold, I feel like there's many times on tape we've seen when he has to think he is not seeing the field very well. And so maybe when he has to turn his back to the defense and he has to turn around and make a split second decision, he might be better. Um, but a guy like, like Justin Fields, he's a slower processor, could be a victim of Ohio State's offense that they run a lot of deeper routes and he kind of has to stare down at a read for a while. Um, and he has a slower release than Zach Wilson. He has good mechanics for sure. Uh, it's almost like Cam Newton-esque in a way where it's it's very polished mechanics, but his, his release is, is a tad slower than Zach Wilson. Obviously, with Wilson, there's concerns about, obviously, the, the injured shoulder, the level of competition he's playing. You know, I don't think he's perfect in reading a defense either. So how much better of a fit do you think Zach Wilson is in this offense than Justin Fields? Could the Jets still take a guy like Fields and tailor it around his strengths, or do you think this is one of those things where, look, it fits like a glove with Wilson, don't mess with it, he's perfect, they should totally go the Zach Wilson route? It's such an interesting question because to me, this question is really about projection versus uh, like projection with what you haven't seen versus projection with what you have seen. I I think that Fields is probably overall a little bit better prospect than Zach Wilson only because he's been able to do it at a high level for a little bit longer than Zach Wilson. The other concern with Zach Wilson is that really he's done it for like a year. Right. And and there are lots of quarterbacks that look really good for a year, Mitch Trubisky. And then you you draft them and you're (laughs) like, oh no, it was really just a one-year flash in the pan. And, and I was talking to, to Seth Galina, who's an analyst at PFF, and, and we were talking about quarterbacks. And, and he said, you know, the, the Zach Wilson quarterback, he, he may already be Kirk Cousins. He may be a quarterback that works incredibly well within that system, but you need that really good offensive line because his offensive line at BYU was phenomenal last year. They give him a lot of time. Right. And, and so it's like, does, does he need a really good offensive line? Does he need that play action? Does he need all these things in order to look as good as he did? Which it still makes him a good prospect, right? That's kind of where, where Garoppolo is. He needs all those things to be there. Or, you know, are you drafting someone that you know needs all those things and now you have to go chase an offensive line and, and chase all these things that, that are going to make that happen? You know, like if, if this is the best he's going to look and everything worked well for him, like maybe that's, that's you're seeing his upside and, and this is it. Um, and so maybe you do go with someone who's got a higher ceiling or, or more potential and someone like Fields who didn't have all the things that Zach Wilson had around him. Um, it's an interesting question. I, I mean, I certainly wanted Zach Wilson to, to hopefully fly under the radar and fall to the Niners somewhere near 12. But he had such a bonker season and he was so good this year um, that, I mean, he's probably going to go in the top five picks. It would surprise me if he doesn't go in the top five picks at this point. Um, and, and I think that, you know, whatever quarterback, uh, if you guys draft a quarterback and don't like trade back or something like that, it will be an interesting decision. I don't know what I would do. I think I would probably still go with fields um, just as a better overall prospect, but even, but Zach Wilson, I would, I would still be so hyped about Zach Wilson. Like I feel like luckily there are good things there that they can do. And given the system, I think Zach Wilson would be a really, really good fit. Yeah, I think both quarterbacks are going to have good careers. And we had a podcast, I think it was two weeks ago, where we kind of broke this down. Uh, a large majority was the Fields versus Wilson debate. And that's really what it came down to is I, I can see Justin Fields being a top five quarterback in this league. I don't know if I can see Zach Wilson being that. But then it's you're weighing the pros of Zach Wilson as experience in this scheme and Justin Fields doesn't. That's not to say, though, there are plenty of times in, in Justin Fields tape where he does go under center and has to roll, you know run a rollout and throw on the move and make reads like that. Doesn't have to do it all the time, a little less complicated than, than a Shanahan system. And it also relates back to the, the type of coaching staff that they've built. We've been so comp- complimentary of it and, and the, the environment that they're, they're trying to build for, for their players in a hands-on type of way. So maybe you do 
take the guy with the higher ceiling, uh, more potential, who's shown at least the ability to do this, and then rely on your coaching to help him with the the reading the field and speeding up that processing time. It's just it's a it's a fascinating debate, um, um, and I'm just really curious to see what type of decision the Jets make. Yeah, totally agree. I think one thing that you've got to do with any quarterback that, that really starts to isolate the play of the individual versus the play of the individual within the system. And I know that at this point, you're kind of picking nits, right? Because every, every quarterback is a, a function of their system to a certain degree. I think Joe Montana was a function of the West Coast offense. Um, you, if you were to put Joe Montana in like a super vertical Dan Marino type offense, he wouldn't do nearly as well. Um, and so I do think there is a marriage that is important between scheme and player. But when you begin to remove the scheme elements, that's when you really get to boil down a quarterback to his essence. When you remove the screens, when you remove play action, when you remove maybe the high variance plays under pressure, or when you remove the super wide open shots when he's in a clean pocket, that, that's when it's like, okay, what does this quarterback do really well? And I think that may be the only worry with Wilson is that when maybe when you begin to peel those things away, what you're left with isn't nearly as impressive of a body of work as what you're left with when you peel those things away from Justin Fields. Um, you're right. I haven't done like a ton of work yet because now we're starting to do the free agency stuff. And in like a month or so, I'll probably dive deep on the quarterbacks. Um, but, but yeah, but that's, that's maybe where I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if you strip enough of that away, you're not left with as much of a good Zach Wilson. Um, and, and so you need all those things, um, but they're going to give them those things in New York. Right. So it's, it's definitely one of those, you know, it, it is, it is a really, really good and interesting question. Yeah, and, and as the Jets try to support whoever they draft, whether it's Fields, Wilson, whatever route they go, uh, improving the skill positions is going to be a big part of that. They definitely have some pieces to work with there, but they they can improve quite a bit at wide receiver, tight end, running back, all three of the key skill positions. So looking at what the Niners did the past few years under Shanahan and with LaFleur under him, what do you think are the key elements that are needed in the skill positions of that offense, whether it's the receivers, the running backs, the tight ends, what are the key traits that you particularly need in this offense more so than other offenses and also the weaknesses that might be mitigated a little bit that aren't as big of a deal to not have in this offense. Yeah. So I think when you're looking at the skill position specifically, Shanahan really started his tenure with San Francisco as as needing three wide receivers that were complementary and did different things based on who and how he wanted to attack. So he always preferred a speedster. He preferred a big possession guy um, and then kind of a shiftier slot guy. That, that was the, the, the way he built his offense. And so, you know, Marquis Goodwin was a speedster initially. He signed Pierre Garcon initially, and he was still looking for, you know, kind of another, another player in that kind of mold. Um, and, and then it really shifted a bit more as his offense shifted in San Francisco and he got a quarterback who wasn't super great at the deep ball. So the speed element, the, that deep speed element was still important, but not as much of a priority. And he started getting some more kind of bruisers and run after the catch players, the run after the catch and the separation from a skill position. Those are things that are always going to be there in the types of skill players that he wants. So even if you're shifting from kind of this complementary wide receiver unit to more of like, a, I'm going to be able to just break a bunch of tackles offensive uh, or wide receiver, it's always separation route running um, and, and the ability to, to run after the catch. That's why the Niners drafted Dante Pettis because he was such a good punt returner uh, at Washington and it didn't really pan out, but you could see the logic behind it. You look at Debo Samuel as a prospect, and he was really a guy who wasn't super fast, but could really separate at the top of his routes. Same thing with Brandon Ayuk. 
he was another really good punt returner, but he was someone who really separated and ran crisp routes because he was explosive, especially on slants. And there was so much of his college tape, which was like caught a slant, take it to the house. And, and so that's the kind of player, if they're looking for similar skill positions at wide receiver that you're going to look for, you're going to look for someone who can run really, really good routes, who can separate in the stem. Because remember that Shanahan's offense is predicated on deception. So a lot of times you've got a route stem that looks exactly the same for 10 yards and then doesn't when you get the break of that stem. Um, I mean, he's got one route when he's got seven or eight different variations of the route. That's called a read route. You've got read route, read takeoff. You've got like one that is like a baked in takeoff, one that depends on whether or not you read the safety and whether they open up or not. The stem looks exactly the same. But what they do largely depends on a couple of other things. And so you really need a wide receiver that's going to be able to execute routes uh, precisely and separate within the route stem. Those big kind of like contested catch players, not really the type of wide receiver that Shanahan goes after. Um, so, so, that, so I'm interested in what happens with Denzel Mims and, and how they utilize right. him because he really is a contested catch guy. Um, yeah. But I thought that, um, you know, he... You can still see some some value in him. I, I still think he's a good wide receiver. I just don't know that I would have. We did some tape watching on Mims, and we actually thought that Pittman was the player that we would want a little bit more than Mims if you were going to try to get a wide receiver in that kind of like second, third round area, just based on skill set. Um, but but yeah, so I, I think that that's more of the skill position that you're that you're going to want someone who can separate and someone who's going to run crisp routes uh, and someone who can run after the catch, which that I think Denzel Mims does does very very well. From the tight end position, I think you need someone who's going to be able to both run, block, and uh, and receive the football. And that's harder to do than it sounds. I mean, George Kittle is the literal shining example of what you want a tight end. Um, that doesn't mean that they can't do other things with other types of tight ends. I mean, the Niners had Jordan Reed as well, and he was more of a receiving kind of slot tight end, not really an inline tight end. Um, so, but the tight end is going to be very, very important. The tight end is going to play, you know, 70, 80, 90% of the snaps. Um, and so they'll likely need two or three tight ends for different things. Shanahan's tight end room is usually their, their number one tight end, which is going to do both things well. And then a run blocking tight end and then some other type of tight end. Um, Levine Toilolo was the run blocking tight end for a while. Um, you've got, you know, Garrett Selleck, who was a run blocking tight end for a while. So you're always going to have that kind of extra, we need another blocker that's a tight end, but can still do some other stuff in there. Um, and, and that's what you're going to get from that tight end position. And then fullback, you know, you just kind of need a fullback. So from skill position, that's kind of the, the thing that rounds out what they're looking for. Yeah, I think, well, as far as blocking tight end goes, I think the Jets will probably count on Trevon Wesco to try to fill that role. We'll see if uh, how he's performed in that he's had flashes as a blocking tight end, but I agree. I definitely think they need to add, add another tight end, especially with the question marks that Chris Herndon presented last year. He was not, you know, Adam Gase called him a unicorn during training camp. I think a lot of jets fans got excited about the role he was going to have in the offense. And then it just never really panned out. And so he's a prime candidate for the post gay success story, but I certainly think they should sign maybe a guy like Trey Burton or maybe draft somebody just to compliment him. And, and so they can run those 12 personnel packages. And then, kind of what you touched on with Mims. I think you probably go back and look at what Shanahan did in Atlanta with Julio Jones. And you talked about kind of when he had the three different types of receivers, I think with Mims, he, he can run after the catch. He has a good 40 time. He can get vertical, but he's not a guy that's really going to separate. He's a guy that is a contested catch type of guy, but he's so talented that I imagine the floor can figure out a way to get him involved. And so maybe it is kind of in that Julio Jones type of role, but when you're looking for those after the catch guys, I mean, there's plenty of guys in free agency in the draft. Obviously, Curtis Samuel. Maybe they want to go Juju Smith-Schuster, Kadarius Tony in the draft. And hell, if they want a burner, a guy like Will Fuller is one of the, the best burners in all of football. 
when he's healthy. But when you look at the offensive line, and this is something that Joe Douglas, the general manager, has just been preaching since the beginning, is that we're going to build the offensive line. And, and I think everybody says that, but he actually means it. I mean, you can tell that he's really going to focus all of his resources um, on, on building up that unit. There's not really many bad teams with great offensive lines. Um, what would you say is, is necessary for, for an offensive lineman in this scheme? Because in Adam Gase's offense, I mean, it feels like they brought in a lot of athletic guys like George Fant, Connor McGovern, and hell, a guy like Mekhi Becton, despite how large he is and strong he is, he's nimble on his feet. So they had a lot of these athletic guys, Greg Van Roten, but they were stationary blockers. They didn't really get him out in space. Is that something you'd expect to change in this LaFleur Shanahan system? What would Joe Douglas and, and uh, Robert Sala be looking for in their offensive linemen? There's a clear pecking order in terms of priority for where you invest resources on the offensive line uh, that Shanahan believes is going to get you a good offensive line. you got to put money in your tackles, left tackle, right tackle. And honestly, it's 2021, I think, last time I checked. Uh, and and the, the, whether you're a right tackle or a left tackle, like the whole left tackle being the premier tackle thing is kind of an anachronism of when you only rushed your best pass rusher on that side. Now you're going to get really good pass rushers on either side. And if you're a defensive coordinator and you're like, you know, oh man, like Makai Becton is over here on one side. I don't know what I'm going to do. You're going to put the dang defensive end on the <laughs> other side. Like that's, it's not that difficult, right? So you need bookend tackles on either side. And that's where you're going to put a majority of your resources. And then the other thing you're going to spend a lot of money on is your center. The Niners did exactly that. I mean, they had Joe Staley, they drafted McGlinchey. But then after Joe Staley retires, they make a trade to get Trent Williams because they knew that that tackle spot was going to be super important. And they've always had a tackle waiting in the wings, whether it be Sean Coleman, they had Dan Brunskill there. They've always had a pipeline because they know tackle is so important. And so I, I think Makai Beckton is, is a fine prospect. And I think he had a really, really good season. You've got one tackle spot figured out. Um, really, it's going to be that center, though. The center, there's a lot on the center. They, they have to worry about protections. And in the outside zone scheme, they're going to do a lot of reach blocks. They've got to be incredibly athletic to be able to get and cover a lot of ground, get in space and wall off a defender in order to create some lanes for that running back. So you need, especially along the interior, usually smaller, more nimble linemen. So if you've already got like a cadre of athletic interior linemen, that's good. You're already kind of a step ahead of that roster building process because Shanahan definitely, you know, you need to be strong. You need to be big because it's the NFL, but he would much prefer a more athletic tackle or a more athletic uh, guard than he would a big bruiser. Like, uh, you know, you think of Niner lines of the past, like Mikey Potty or someone like that. Like that's going to be someone who's good in a gap scheme, not someone who's good in his own scheme. Uh, and, and so that's, that's the kind of offensive line guy that you're really going to go after. Athleticism along the line, really smart center, bookend tackles. Yeah, and that is hearing you talk about the reach blocks and the athleticism on the interior is, I think, good news for Connor McGovern, who had a rough season picking up stunts and things like that, which could make him a good potential conversion to guard, which is where he started his career. But reach blocks and getting out in the move, things like that is where he really excelled. So he could be a good fit, whether he stays at center or moves over to guard. So seems like it is good news for him. And also George Fant, who is a pretty athletic right tackle who can get out in space but to look at the defense now and uh the important skills needed on that side of the, uh, of the football looking at the defensive line what are what are some of the key things that the jets are going to need 
in there. What are the philosophies of the interior D linemen? Are there going to be a lot of two gapping and one gapping, a good mix of both or a good mix of both of those. And then on the edge, because I think um, at least from our perspective, we've mostly been focusing on guys who played their hand in the dirt, like Armstead, like Bosa, Kerry Hyder last year. We've mostly been focusing on those guys and sort of um, looking off the stand-up outside linebackers like your Bud Dupree's of the world, Shaq Barrett's, guys like that. So what are the Jets going to be looking for on that defensive line? Is it going to be just those defensive ends who put their hands in the dirt, three-point, four-point stance, or is there going to be a room for guys who can stand up on that edge? I think that you know any way that you can get to the, the passer, you can do it. Right. And, and so if you can do it without your hand in the dirt or you do it with your hand in the dirt, hey, man, whatever works for you, I think you've got a defensive coordinator um, and, and hopefully a head coach that's just going to let them do them if they can get to, to the passer. And so I wouldn't worry too much about that. If they are going to prefer one, it's definitely going to be preferring a traditional 4-3 defensive end because the, the way that the line positions really break out for, for and have for the 49ers with Robert Sala is you've got your, your nose tackle, right? You've got your one technique or your zero technique. They're going to be shaded on the center or heads up on the center, depending on a couple of different things. Usually they're shaded though. You've got a three technique and you guys have already got a fantastic one in Quinn and Williams. Um, I mean, that guy is very good at football. Uh, and he had a very, very good year this year. You guys have got the three technique on lock. It's going to be another one gapping penetrating type of player that's going to get some one-on-ones um, along the interior and who's got, you know, the athleticism to, to beat usually less athletic guards. And then on, on the ends, you're going to have uh, really a wide nine if he carries the wide nine with him. And it seems like he may have. You're going to need a speed rusher um, and you're going to need another guy that's going to be a little bit bigger kind of run stopping defensive end. So what, what the Niners did in San Francisco was they had Bosa, who was just kind of just very good at everything, and Eric Armstead, who was more of a bigger defensive end who was still one-gapping but was really head up on, on the tackle or sometimes the tight end if he was out to wide nine. Um, and, and then you kind of kick him inside and bring in D Ford as a speed rusher on obvious passing downs. And so that's what you're likely going to see is you're going to see, you know, the, the base downs. And by base downs, I mean, you know, like first down, second down, ones where you're not going to see obvious passing situations. You might see a little bit beefier defensive line, uh, maybe more of that two gapping five technique um, out on the edge. Uh, I think you, you mentioned that was like Fatukasi, right? Um, yes. And, and so you might see him on like downs one and two. And then when you get into obvious passing downs or when you get into a team that likes to spread a lot, you might see him get pulled off and you might see maybe a faster, more athletic person put out there on the edge. It could be a former linebacker that was a three, four linebacker that's just out there, um, but, but plays more of that role. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is going to be, you know, his, his motto is all gas, no breaks, right? So, and actually all gas, no break. Uh, Thank you. I, Oh yeah, so many people mess it up. I think I did mess it up the first time, but no so one has Sala, a consensus. Sala used to Sala used to correct. I can, I can definitively tell you which is the right one here right now because Sala used to correct the beat writers in the reporting room, and he would say break. It is not breaks. It is break directly from Robert Sala as he corrected well, Niners beat writers. And and I've seen people spell it like B R E A K, like break, and it's like no no no, it's it's break like. Like a car yes. break, right? Yeah, yes, like that's, that's yeah, it's, yes, it's, it's, yes, yes, yes. All gas, no break. Yeah, it's it's, it's honestly a giant controversy <laughs> in, in Jets land. So yes, far. it is. And also, it everybody is keeps stealing no it. I can. Well, I'm seeing it. University of Texas had a Twitter post about Steve Sarkeesian. It. So I went to UT, and yeah, Steve Sarkeesian. He brought it over from uh, from I don't know where the hell he brought it over, but Steve Sarkeesian says no breaks. For him, it's plural. Oh, okay. For Sala, okay. it's singular. 
there's no uh, copyright have, infringement. No, not at all. You know, you gotta you gotta you gotta come correct with your stealing of things. You know, it's like uh, uh, Vanilla Ice when he stole Queen's song. You know, he just added like a pickup note on the front end, <laughs> and it totally changed the song, right? Um, but but yeah, so I think that he you're definitely gonna see a lot of one gapping um, from that defensive line. And depending on what you see, you're going to see personnel kind of shift around a little bit. Um, but you, you guys already have some really good pieces on the defensive line. Quinn and Williams, chief among them. Yeah, and friend of the podcast, John Franklin Myers, I think is perfect for that role in that five technique who can slide in on passing down, sit him next to Quinn and Williams, and he's more athletic than the guards he's going to face. He had a fantastic season um, in that three-tech role and, and going up against less athletic guards. So really excited um, to watch John Franklin Myers in this defense. When we look at the linebackers, and this is a position that I don't think anybody's really talking about. Michael and I talked about it a lot last week. We're looking at free agents because – Look, you have a guy in CJ Mosley who's going to be your Mike linebacker next year. I think he's owed $18 million or something. So he's not going anywhere for at least the next two years, although he hasn't played in two years. So he's, he's a massive question. Um, but the Sam and the Will outside linebackers and Robert Sala's defense, what do they need to be able to do? Because the Jets haven't run a 4-3 in over 15 years. Um, and I think they've kind of always been criticized for not having athleticism at that linebacker spot. And that sounds like a must-have in a Robert Sala defense. Yeah, that really is built into what they want to do. They, they have to go fast. And in order to go fast, kind of have to have speed. Uh, the, the linebackers are going to be important. They're very important in coverage as well. The, the order of operations for the linebackers in Salah's defense is really going to be Mike. That's going to be your, your really, really big important one. Uh, and then your weak side linebacker. Those are usually the two linebackers that stay on the field in nickel. And nickel, even though it's called a quote-unquote sub-package, it is the dominant and predominant defense in the NFL. It's the defense you're going to run 65 to 75% of the time. So it really is going to be like more of a 4-2-5 a lot of the time. And then when you bring on that third linebacker, it is going to be that Sam linebacker. The Sam and the Will positions are really interchangeable. It's just that Sam position is going to take on more blocks and, and they're going to take on the tight end because they're on the strong side of the formation, right? So, so they are going to be, they're going to usually need to be a little bit bigger and take on blocks and be able to kind of get in and mix it up in the, uh, in the area of the line of scrimmage. And then the will linebacker is going to be fast, usually clean up, kind of wrap over the top of stuff, and maybe also have some good coverage responsibilities as well. Uh, the, the Niners have found some really good ones in the draft. I think you can probably get a really good linebacker in like the third, fourth, fifth round in a draft. It's not something that you should spend a ton of resources on. Um, but, but it's definitely going to be something that at least that your will linebacker spots probably going to need to get some, some love if there's not someone already on the roster who can do it. Um, but yeah, your Sam linebacker, I mean, that, that's a really a position that's on the field, like 25% of the time. So you really only need someone who's going to be good enough, you know, 25% of the time. It's not something you need to worry about a ton, but your mic and your will are really going to be those, those positions that are going to be super important. And finally, the secondary, you talked a little bit about it before, and, and it was exciting to hear you talk about the importance of that single high safety, because I think it's a great fit for Marcus May. That's where he's at his best. So if the Jets can get him back on whether, however they get him back, it's a good fit for him to continue playing well. But in the secondary, what are some of the most important things, both at that safety position with those outside corner spots, and then also the strong safety position, because if May is going to stay as that deep safety and they bring him back, then Ashton Davis could be playing in there. So I think a lot of fans are uh, are curious about what his role is going to be. So what are the Niner or in the solid defense? What are you looking for from the safety positions in the corners? So we actually did a, a scattering report on Ashton Davis when he was coming out of Cal because we thought he might be, you know, some second round value the Niners could get in order to, to play that single high safety. Ashton Davis is fast as all holy get out. 
Um, that's, that's the one thing I remember from his tape. Um, and he hits really hard um, if he can get himself under control. And, and he, he would probably play more of that single high deep safety. The, the solid defense is, especially if he plays that single high a lot, is going to rely on, generally speaking, one safety to play that deep middle third. Uh, and so they've got to have the range to go, not sideline to sideline, but really like number to number, because the corner is going to be the person that's responsible from like, you know, really number to sideline. And, and that's going to be, and then you've got your other safety who's going to play around the box and the preferred cover three coverage that, that, that Salah likes to run usually has that strong safety in a hook curl zone as one of the four underneath pass defenders. So they're going to be, they're going to see like shorter routes, maybe some tight ends uh, or maybe some running backs, depending on, on, on what specific coverage you're calling later in Salah's tenure though, the safeties became a bit more interchangeable you didn't see as much like one safety is always playing deep and one safety is always near the box. So if you have safeties that are a bit more interchangeable, you might, you know, kind of see some of that more happen right away where you disguise a bit with split safeties and then rotate based on strength. Um, that's just, I think, where the NFL is going. So uh, it'd be interesting to see if he kind of goes back to Niners defense of 2017 and begins to establish that foundation again, or if he kind of starts with what he had in 2018, 2019 and kind of tries to zoom forward a little bit, but the, the, you're going to usually get your, your strong safety, your free safety, and then your, your corners the, it's a heavy zone defense. So you're not going to see a ton of man coverage. It is going to be a lot of zone defense, some match defenses. Um, and, and it's not a super heavy blitz, although he's like kind of layered some blitzes in later in, in his 49ers career. So the, the nickel corner, you don't necessarily need a strong man to man nickel corner. K1 Williams has been probably one of the top five nickel corners in football over the past three years, but he's not like a man to man, lock him up kind of guy. He really is a zone, uh, a zone corner. Who's able to come up in run fits when he needs to, and he's a great tackler. So you do need someone who's going to be able to tackle very well. And you do need someone who is going to uh, be able to kind of spot drop to his own, but be very good with his eyes and react to what's happening in front of him. Now the corners, they do play what effectively ends up being man to man. Sometimes, even though it's a heavy zone defense, a lot of times they end up on an Island because of the, what, what the offense can do to them. So they do need athleticism. They do need speed, especially straight line speed to cover the deep third. Um, and they do need to have some man to man uh, responsibilities kind of on lock. So it, it is going to be definitely a, a, a scheme that is tough on the corners and that middle deep safety. But if Salah chooses to build his team, like the Niners do, he's going to build it with the defensive line and he's going to put resources into the defensive line and he's going to try and get bargains in the secondary. I'd be curious to see if he does it the other way around, um, especially knowing that maybe he already has a couple of key pieces on the defensive line um, and tries to put some, some dollars into the secondary because um, that's what the Niners have done. And it's, you know, mixed results, but, but I wonder if he carries that with him as well, building from the defensive line and then going into the secondary. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question. And you mentioned a guy in K1 Williams and talking about the secondary, another guy like Richard Sherman comes in, uh, into mind. Players that you think will follow Robert Sala from San Francisco to New York. Obviously, we've already rated a good bit of the staff. I would imagine that there's going to be a few players that will follow him to New York. Williams is, is a prime candidate that nickel spot because of the Jets nickel corner and Brian Poole, who's also a, a fantastic nickel corner and is all right uh, in his own right, has been injured and you know, it would make sense. His contracts are uh, done after this season. So it would make sense to maybe swap him out for somebody uh, who has uh, familiarity in Salah's scheme. And then a guy like Richard Sherman has just sung Salah's praises for the last few years now. So who are some of the guys in San Francisco that you think are the most likely to be New York Jets 
um, by know, the time free agency is wrapped up. I'd be curious to see what happens with Richard Sherman. I think the West Coast thing might be something that keeps him on the West Coast. Uh, John Gruden was on a podcast with him uh, just a couple of weeks ago and basically tried to lure him to <laughs> Las Vegas. So, you know, I think he may stay in, in, in and around the West Coast, although Richard Sherman is someone who I could absolutely see Sala sign. Uh, the other one is, is Jaquaski Tart. He's the strong safety for the 49ers, who's also a free agent. I could see the Niners thinking that they could move on from someone like Jaquaski Tart. And, and Jaquaski Tart is a, a good in-the-box safety, and he is, he's always in the right place. He's a sound tackler. The problem is that he's kind of always injured. And, and that is, that's problematic. And that's really been his bugaboo with the 49ers. Cause if, if you want to see one hell of a play, go back to, I think the 2018 week one game against Carolina, he has a one handed Odell like interception that is just bonkers. Um, and, and then you zoom forward to 2019 and he, uh, he strips the football from a Seahawks player in, in the game where the Niners end up winning the game to kind of get the division and, and get the first seed on their way to the Super Bowl in 2019. He's a really, really good uh, player in that system. And he's someone that I could see the, the Jets going after if the Niners feel like they can, they can do with another player there. Um, I could see Kerry Hyder going over as well. Um, Kerry Hyder is going to, his, his sacks this year, I think, make you think that he's a better player than he is. He's a solid backup. He's a good rotational player. He's not someone that you should spend $11, $12 million a year on because you think he's going to be like an eight or 10 sack player. Um, he really benefited from the situation in San Francisco, but he's not a bad player. He's a good depth player. He's a guy you want to pay, you know, a few million to a year, maybe four or 5 million and really back up your, what, what Salah will call the Bravo group. Um, this terminology is one that comes from wide nine and, and Chris Kosurik. I'm not sure if, if uh, Salah is going to take it, but you've got your alphas, your Bravos and your turbos alpha is going to be your starter. And, and then your Bravo is going to be like your backup unit. And then your turbo is going to be a speed guys who come in on third down. Um, Kerry Hyder is a really, really good Bravo player. Um, but I, I'm not going to expect him to be really on, on that alpha area. Um, you know, you mentioned Kyle Juszczyk. I'm curious whether or not he's going to leave because Kyle Juszczyk has a really, really good relationship with, uh, the, the mic that stayed. There are two mics that help run the offense for, uh, the 49ers. It was Mike LaFleur and Mike McDaniel. Well, the floor leaves, goes with Sala. McDaniel stays. McDaniel was the run game coordinator, and he's really, really tight with Juszczyk. And so I think maybe Juszczyk, because of that, you know, that relationship, maybe ends up staying. I'm not sure if he takes a pay cut or not. But look, if you guys want to take that you know, $23 million salary off of our hands, please do. Because um, I love Kyle Juszczyk, but I don't like paying you know, three times the going rate for a fullback uh, unless you've got the cap dollars to do it. Uh, and I think that, that the Jets do. Meanwhile, the Niners, not so much. Um, but yeah, I think those are probably the ones that are, are of consequence. I could see Solomon Thomas maybe going to New York. Um, you know, definitely, I think he, he is another one of those solid backup players. He'd be in that Bravo unit. Um, but, you know, you, you'd get the better end of the Solomon Thomas deal because you guys would probably pay him more of a market rate um, than the Niners did. They paid him, you know, third overall pick rate. And that was certainly not where he slotted in. Um, so that's probably where I could see, you know, K1 Williams being one that you guys mentioned as well, but just stay away from Jason Verrett is all I'm saying. Just like that's, that's just leave him for us. Okay. <laughs> and, and so to wrap it up, I think the biggest question with both, both of our teams is the quarterback position and the biggest domino to fall is Sam Darnold. Where is he going to end up? Is he going to stay? Is he going to go? And if he goes, where will he go? And what will he 
bring back. And the Niners are a team that have really been mentioned, I think, as one of the most consistent potential landing spots for him. So how likely do you think it is that Darnold, uh, the Niners do pursue Darnold? And what do you think of his potential fit with the 49ers? So Darnold's an interesting case. And, and I've got a question for y'all. Because the, the hypothetical trade that was bantied about was the Niners trading back. Uh, and uh, I think the, the way that it worked is like the Niners get Sam Darnold um, and we trade back and the Jets trade back into 12 uh, and end up making some other pick that y'all that want. But it's basically like the trade back that ends up sending right. Darnold to the Niners. Um, and, and I think you guys end up with like another second round pick from the Niners. Um, in order to, to get Sam Darnold over to the 49ers. Are, are you all so over Sam Darnold that you guys would see that being a thing? Do you guys need to trade back up to 12 to kind of help bolster the team out such that, that you need additional stuff? Or are you like, you know what? Darnold is, is fine enough that you want him to compete even if there's a rookie and, and let's see what happens. Well, so it's, it's the trade from the Seahawks pick. So, tw- so the Jets would move from 23 to 12. And the Niners give up a 2022 second and they get Sam Darnold. Is that, that was, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, You know what? I, I mean, hell I'd take that. I think, I think, you know, the draft this year is so deep though, that I think the difference in player are going to get a 12 and 23. There is obviously a a gap there, but it's not insane like in other years, but I still think the values there and look, if, if the board falls the way it falls and you don't like, who's there maybe you can trade down and and recoup even more assets i think the key part is that you get a 2022 second so a lot of people including myself thought that his value was going to be at a second so the fact that you can get a future second and then move up and maybe take a a top player like jc horn or christian derisaw um somebody of that level or maybe a top receiver like Devontae smith falls um i think that makes it worth it and if nobody's there then you just trade down and maybe you pick up another second and so i i think that's a, a a very good trade for the jets and i think it makes sense for the niners yeah, and I think I think in general, just you should know that for the most part, we are done with Darnold and looking to get get rid of him. <laughs> Michael's been done. Whatever since we can get for him, whatever we can get for him. I was one of his biggest supporters going to the season. I wrote literally a hundred reasons to believe in him in one article, but it just they all did failed. not. They none of them panned out, but it it did not work out this season. the The excuses were very legitimate the first two seasons with the support and everything, but this season it was I don't know what it was and it, you can't really point to injuries or anything because most of it was just mental and accuracy and things like that but it he really fell off hard this season and all most of the mistakes he were making just had nothing to do with the support it was clean pockets wide open receivers that he just wasn't capitalizing on as when he would the first two seasons so yeah i'm i'm definitely over him personally and i think most of the fan base has sort of come around on that there there are some who are still uh b- behind him but uh, at least for me, I, I would definitely agree with that trade as well. And I think for the most part, I'm looking to get whatever they can get for him. And I think most of us are. Would you guys do it for a third rounder straight up? No. I th- well, I mean, if that was the best offer. I think, I think you can get more than that. But, but, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, like you're saying, if that, that, whatever you can get, if that's the best you can get. Yeah. I, I don't I, know I that I would be, I mean, look, trading back and getting assets is always good, but usually it's getting from the 49ers perspective, it's usually getting draft assets. That's good. Right. So like to, to exactly to your point, right. If, if I were getting the second rounder in the future, then I'd be like, Oh yeah, hell yeah. Let's do it. Like you want to trade up, let's get some more picks. But I, I don't think Darnold is the kind of guy you blow up your quarterback room for. He's the guy that you maybe bring in to compete with, with Jimmy Garoppolo. Right. And, and I think that you can do that if, if maybe Trey Lance is there at 12 and if he's not there, then, you know, maybe that's when the Niners trade down or they, they're probably going to end up getting like right. a, a corner or a defensive end. So it's interesting. You know, I, I think with Darnold, 
if you're already on the hook for a salary and he's going to be there for another year and you're going to draft a rookie, then I don't see what the issue is with keeping them both. Um, and, and then you just kind of let the competition happen as it happens and then play the best person um, or end up flipping him for resources a little bit later when teams get a bit more desperate because there's an injury or something like this, that. This is the difference between the San Francisco and the New York market because that might work in San Francisco, but in New York, I just think the headlines and the distraction of having the once promised savior and having to battle it out with Justin, Fee, it would just be a nightmare, I think, for, for Robert Salazar. I, from a pure football perspective, it makes a lot of sense, especially since I think you can make an argument that fields and wilson maybe aren't ready to start immediately out of the gate but man i thought do, do not want to deal with the new york daily news and the new york post headlines during training camp about the you know the quarterback stats in training camp and the distraction oh that's and, the worst that's and splitting the, worst. the locker room and who's there yeah i just i think we should just cut our ties clean slate fresh start that's kind of how we see it but i think that the jets are going to get benefited because i mean it's like 15 different teams are in the market for a quarterback so i just think yeah. that whether it's the Saints, the Bears, or the Colts, the, the the Washington football team, somebody I think is going to offer a late one. That's at least yeah. what they're saying. But I think I think a two is a safe assumption. But I think there's a, a high chance that you could get a, a late one. Maybe you have to send a fourth back or something. But you're you're probably absolutely right. And and you you can probably bleed a first like a late first rounder out of someone. But I think a second rounder seems right. And right. I don't know that. Like, I think if it were a, a first, if, I think if it were a second rounder straight up and I got to keep my pick at 12, I'd be more comfortable than if I traded back. Right. Um, and, and also sent a future second. Like that's, that's where it's like, I feel like that's a little rich for my blood. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think that's probably rich. I think if that, I think in that case, the Jets should have to send a third back or something to try to. Yeah. Yeah. Out. You know, or maybe even like, you know, another pick this year and then you get right. a future second, you know, where you end up swapping out something in that, in that regard. But yeah, I think. It, it, Darnold is talented enough uh, and young enough that he's worth a shot. I think that of the quarterbacks that the Niners have that are reasonably available, because I don't put a Watson in the reasonably available camp. Um, I, I think that would be a cheat code for Shanahan, but I just, you know, you know if you wanted that cheat code, maybe you should have drafted him in 2017. Um, and, and so I think that, that at this point, it's like Garoppolo and a rookie and really like Sam Darnold, or if you get really lucky, Kirk Cousins, and right. of those options, it's probably going to be Garoppolo and a rookie. But I wouldn't be mad if Sam Darnold were traded for for a second round pick. Um, and 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 but at the same time, I also wouldn't be mad if it didn't happen. Like it's right. it's not. I don't have such strong feelings one way or the other. Um, there's there's still some meat on the Sam Darnold bone, but you know, giving a second rounder for a, for maybe what is a backup, like eh, maybe we'll just draft a quarterback and kind of go from there. Oscar, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show again. Uh, again, fantastic guest you are. I mean, that's, this has been uh, incredibly knowledgeable. For, for my end, I mean, I feel like I just know so much more about what the Jets are going to be looking for as they head into this offseason, a very important offseason for both teams. Uh, and we'll see what happens with Darnold. I think, I think he probably gets traded. If San Francisco makes sense, but I think, I think they'll squeeze out a late one out of, of New Orleans. That's kind of my, my gut feeling. But um at better rivals on twitter you can follow them there oscar feel free to plug any of the other stuff i feel like jets fans are kind of they have to choose an nfc team right now it's it's the niners i mean we got we got the solid connection a lot of staff connections we're gonna have former players and it we can just add into the list of teams that we're gonna have to monitor for for potential free agents in the future just given the, the the connections but let our listeners know where they can find your stuff uh, always on Twitter at better rivals. Uh, I, I don't know that the Niners and jets play, uh, for a little bit, but when they do, uh, let's do it again. It's all right fun to talk with y'all. Definitely. Definitely. I th yeah. We got, we have four years from that. Well, actually with the 17th game, maybe they, 
maybe they'll play uh, sooner because I think they're supposed to add a 17th game and it like rotates by division. So maybe they'll play sooner, but uh, definitely we'll take you up on that offer. You can follow us at CYJ pod on Twitter. You can follow Michael at Michael underscore Nanny and myself at Ben W. Blessington. You can find this podcast where you listen to podcast, iTunes, Spotify, JetsXFactor.com, the best place to go for Jets content. A lot coming at you in the next few months with the uh, free agency and the draft. Uh, and as always, folks, don't the Jets right Looks right, fires a bomb down the right sideline again for Mims. What a catch by Denzel Mims.